0: All right, so we're going to be start, starting right back in again with Psalm 139. So again, opener, turn to that, and I'm going to begin to read. I'm not going to read all of it, but uh, um, I'll try to call out where we're headed. So, verse one: O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I st- when I uh, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and if I sit on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Verse 13, for you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days uh, for were ordained for me. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Where i to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We read most of it. We didn't read all of it. But if you are like me, when, the, when I first heard this, the first several times I heard this, I was incredibly confused um, as to where all this anger comes from all of a sudden. Because the psalm is so beautiful. Uh, as David is, you've searched me, you know me, you knit me together, you know all my days, everything is ordained. Before a word is on my lips, you know it, O oh God. And there's such intimacy. That's what David's really getting at here in those in those beginning verses. He he says it already. Verse 1, you've searched me and you know me. And then he explores that. He begins to expound on that and says, this is what this looks like then. You've searched me. You know me. Uh, you know all of my, in, my ins and my outs, my goings and my comings, everything about me. You know these things about me, Lord. And it's in light of the fact, it's in light of the, the, the revelation and the acknowledgement that God knows him, that he then feels safe to say, so would you just kill these bloodthirsty men, these wicked people? Like, God, you already know that this is on my heart. You already know that this is how I feel. So here it is. Would you kill these people? Would you eliminate them? Would you get rid of them? And there's this freedom for David to begin to enter into an honest transparent dialogue where he just says, God, this is the truth of my heart. You already know it. So I'm going to share it with you. So would you slay the wicked? And then it's, it's interesting what he does here. He bookends it. He says, then at the end, search me, O God, and know my heart. He begins with saying, you have searched me. And then he invites God to continue to search him. So search me and know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting and the prayer of this psalm really doesn't start until uh, verse 19, if only you would slay the wicked. And that's because this psalm, and we quote it for a lot of different things, and it's beautiful for a lot of different things, but this psalm is is called an imprecatory psalm. It's a psalm of anger. And David is 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 asking the Lord to do something in his anger about the circumstances that he's facing. And what I want to emphasize again is this idea that there is great intimacy that David has with God. He acknowledges that he is uh, deeply, deeply known by God. And so it's safe. It's safe to come out of hiding. He doesn't have to feel like he he needs to hold things back. He can be honest with God and tell God where he's at and what he's experiencing, what he's thinking. Even though, and think about it, guys, even though it sounds disgusting, (laughs) he's asking God to kill people. Like he this is David, and he's making a request of God to kill people because he's so angry with them that to be able to do that, not even saying whether or not that's right or wrong, to be able to be in a place where you can be that honest with god um takes takes I would say a good amount of intimacy now here's the thing though too David is Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was not indwelling. The spirit was present. He was upon. He he would this idea of anointing. He would actually come and hover over people. Is the picture that we get in the Old Testament? But he was not yet living in the person to some extent. That has to happen because he was working in the heart to to cause to love to sanctify. But it was not the type of union that we have with with the spirit because of Christ. And yet there's this great deal of a uh, degree of intimacy. So I would I would even argue that we could have a greater deal of intimacy where there are no things hidden from God's sight for us that whatever disgusting thought we have in our mind or is upon our heart that we would actually have the freedom to to share those things with the Lord and to express them to say God I really I really hate that person would you just like kill them get rid of them in my life can you can you get them fired from my job please they are so annoying but that's not where David ends. He doesn't just end with that. He ends in the search me, God, know me, and he he's inviting God. Like I, I I wonder if David, as he as he composed this, if he was saying, "But I know this isn't the right posture to have. This is the truth, though." This is the truth of my heart, but I know this isn't what's right. So God, search me and know me, test me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way or any hurt way within me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He's acknowledging, God, you know everything about me, so here's my heart, so search it, would you heal it? And that's what the Lord is still inviting us into, is that type of a relationship with him in prayer. And as we start to talk about prayer, It's that type of relationship and prayer that we can have with God should we allow ourselves to do that. I would encourage you to be explicit in your prayers. Whatever that looks like. Because God already knows it and you don't have to be a good boy or a good girl when you go to him. Because he sees you as you are and he loves you all the same. There's something very freeing about that. We don't have to hide our bad from God. Because he's redeeming. He's already redeemed and he is redeeming all of that. So under prayer is a relationship to a person. Page 107 it says prayer is two-way fellowship and communication with God. You speak to God and he speaks to you. Prayer is not one-way conversation in which you merely list everything you want God to do. Your personal prayer life may primarily be one-way communication. You talk to God. But prayer is more than that. Prayer includes listening. In fact, what God says in prayer is far more important than what you say. God already knows what you're going to say. You, however, do not know what God is thinking. Prayer is a relationship, not just a religious activity. There are other religions, other people groups, um, other sects of Christianity who would make prayer out to be something that uh, that is more religious. It's something that you do have to do um, something that's done out of routine uh, and it's not necessarily something that's done in relationship but for us as for for Christians that's what prayer ultimately and, and truly at its core is, is it's talking to this person uh, the person of Jesus knowing that um. knowing that as we pray that we are getting to know him all the more flip over to page 108 and we're going to read that whole section where it says praying in the spirit So it says, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God when you pray. When I pray about something, Scripture often comes to mind. I don't see that as a distraction. Instead, God uses it to guide me. As I pray about a particular matter, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it to my heart and mind to reveal the truth. I immediately stop praying and open God's Word to the passage. I believe the Spirit brought to my mind. I assume God wants to give me specific direction through the Scripture He led me to. Sometimes as I pray, the Spirit places a particular person on my heart. I assume God is alerting me through prayer to someone He wants me to minister to, uh, or minister to through me. After I pray, I always look to I look for, for ways God leads me to minister to that person. Now I think Blackbee would say, you know, as he's already labored the point of it's not cookie cutter all the time, so it's not that you have to do this in prayer. Uh just so that you don't feel like, oh I've got to I've got to pray in this way, if scripture comes to my mind I need to stop praying and then open the word. No, there's times where it's actually far more appropriate, I would venture to say to continue reading or to continue praying rather than to go to the word, there's going to be times where it'd be better for you to go to the word to be ministered to. Um, so not to make this a cookie cutter, but this is a this is a type of model or a type of guide for us to be able to look at and to say, what does it look like for us to pray in the spirit and to really even even for our prayer time to be led by the spirit, for us to be so present with God, so abiding with God that he is guiding even the words that we speak. And we're going to talk more about that now on page 109. So jump over there. It says, We are weak and do not know how we ought to pray. The Holy Spirit has an advantage over us. He already knows God's will. He is God. When he prays for us, he is interceding in agreement with God's will. He then helps us to know God's will as we pray. And I'm going to read this example that he gives here. He says, For his sixth birthday, my oldest son, Richard, was old enough to have a bicycle. I bought a blue Schwinn and hid it in the garage. Then I had a task, to convince Richard that he needed a blue Schwinn bike. At first, Richard was interested only in small toys that would have been quickly broken. I sought to elevate his desires until he wanted something of quality and durability. We worked with him for a while, and he eventually decided that he really wanted a blue Schwinn bike for his birthday. Do you know what Richard got? The bike was already in the garage. I just had to convince him to ask for it. He asked for it, and he got it. What happens when you pray? The Holy Spirit knows what God has in the garage for you already. It's already there. The Holy Spirit's task is to convince you to want it, to get you to ask for it. What will happen when you ask for the things God already wants to give you? Will you always receive it? Why? Because you've asked something according to His will. When God answers your prayers, He gets the glory and your faith is increased. And that's such a cool thing to think about. That's a It's a great example, I think, and and to, to then transfer that and to say, like, well, what does that actually practically look like? Um, to take one of our vices, whatever that might be, and to consider it with the Lord, to say, uh, wow, God, I really struggle with this. Um, the Lord wants to sanctify that. The Spirit desires to to purify that part of you. And so as you begin to then pray into that, he's like, cool, I wanted to do that in you. Or like I was saying earlier, when he makes us aware of our sin, that's actually a thing of his grace And so as we become aware of it, we go, whoa, God, that's gross. I didn't realize that was there. Can we get rid of that? He's like, yeah, that's why I brought it up. So let's get rid of that. And then we get to receive this gift of sanctification where we are sanctified deeper in a deeper way. It's more realized or more actualized where, oh, wow, I'm now experiencing uh, this righteousness of Christ. Um, Not just in like a salvific way where because I'm covered in the blood of Jesus, um, I'm saved. Not because of that alone, but we begin to experience it in, in a way where we say, wow, my heart has actually taken the shape of this new creation, this new creation that I am. John sixteen thirteen, there on the side, it says, he will not speak his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. And this is something that Jesus is saying to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. So these are things that the Spirit is doing. He's not speaking simply on his own. In other words, he's he is relating to us the Father's words. And he's going to speak what he hears. Jump over to page 110 and that first, uh, is that the right page? Yeah. First sentence up there, God will never lead you to do something that contradicts his written word. If what you sense in prayer runs contrary to scripture, it is wrong. For instance, God will never lead you to commit adultery. And believe it or not, people have concluded that. They've said, well, I wasn't happy and God told me in prayer that he wanted me to be happy. So I left my spouse and now I'm with this person. No. I mean, like, that's a gross misappropriation of, of our prayer life with the Lord. He's, he's not going to tell us to do something that's sinful. He's always opposed to that. Watch for God to use the written word to confirm or correct what you sense in prayer. However, don't play games with God. Don't just look for a scripture that seems to say what you want to do and then claim it as God's will. That's dangerous. Part of that is, is good hermeneutics, right? We don't just flip our Bible open, point to a page, and say, this is my word for today because that can lead us into all sorts of trouble. I gave the example a couple of weeks ago, but I'll give it again of a bride who on her wedding day opens up and reads in uh, one of Paul's epistles. Um, I think it's Romans, but uh, you know, to it's better to be single. Um, is it first Corinthians? Okay. Yeah. So could you imagine? And then if she actually followed that, it was like, Oh God's word for me today is that it's better to be single. So I'm I'm not getting married that would be so sad. Like she would need to read the context, like what we did earlier. She would need to read the context of that to really understand that that's not what that passage is talking about, uh, that it's talking about service unto the Lord. And Paul is speaking out of his own experience of being, um, a single and and having more time and space to devote to God's service. So we don't just want to look for scripture, um, and, and take it out of context and apply it to our life because it makes us feel good or it sounds right. Um, if we do that, then we're really devaluing we're devaluing what God's word actually truly says and what he wants to do in us. So the summary statement's over there on the side. When the God of the universe tells me something in my quiet time, I should write it down before I forget it. That's something that we didn't cover, but it's in there. So when you guys go back through it, you can read that. Truth is a person being the Holy Spirit. Prayer is a two-way communication with God. Prayer is a relationship, not just a religious activity. I need to make sure that my only desire is to know God's will. In other words, to not let our own desires get in the way. Page 113. uh, Actually, 112, because we're going to read the verse there, and then we'll read the story on 113. So 112, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So page 113 Have you ever prayed for one thing and received another? I have. When that happened to me, some dear soul would inevitably say, God is trying to get you to persist. Keep praying until you receive what you are asking for. I kept asking God for one thing, but I kept receiving something else. During one of these experiences, I started reading from Mark 2, which tells the account of the four men who brought their crippled friend to Jesus to be healed. Because of the large crowd, they opened a hole in the roof of the house and let the man down in front of Jesus. Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. I started to read on, but I sensed the Spirit of God saying, Henry, did you see that? I went back and I meditated on that scripture. Under the Holy Spirit's guiding, teaching ministry, ministry, I discovered a wonderful truth. The four men uh, asked Jesus to physically heal the man, but Jesus forgave the man's sins. They asked for one thing, and Jesus gave another. This man and his friends asked for a temporary gift, but Jesus wanted to make the man a child of God for eternity so that he could inherit everything. I found myself weeping before God and saying, oh God, if I ever ask you for one thing and you have more to give me than what I'm asking, please cancel my request. Page 115, second paragraph there, first sentence. When I pray, I immediately begin to watch for what happens next. There's this idea of praying with expectancy as we begin to ask the Lord for things, to, to not just forget that we asked for it, especially if we don't see it right away in the way that we want to see it, um, uh, but to keep our eyes open for well, what is the Lord then doing? Uh, if if I'm not seeing what I just prayed for, then where is he actually at work? Um, is there something that he actually wants to realign in my heart, something that he wants to redirect in my heart? Uh, under the silences of God, and this is where we're going to get into a little bit of um, this dark night type of idea, but it says I went through a lengthy time when God was silent. Jump over to the next page, middle paragraph says, God's silence means that he is ready to bring something into my life, a greater revelation of him than I have ever known. Under, there, uh, under eight says, now when I pray and God is silent, I still pray through my sin checklist. Sometimes God's silences are caused by sin in my life. Further down, says, deeper understanding is absolute dependence. This is things that comes out of the silence time. And he says, you can feel uh, frustrated, feel guilty, or be impatient, or you can expect that God is about to bring you into a deeper knowledge of himself. So when God is seemingly silent, um, that can be a really lonely and a a very frustrating experience for us, especially when there's things that are so pressing to us and things that, that are really important to us to sense him to not say anything. It's like, God, why don't you care about this like I do? Shouldn't you care more? Uh, I thought you were God. I thought you were my father. I thought you were my friend. And that can be our experience. Again, conceptually, we might know that God is there. Conceptually, we, we might even know that the spirit is, uh, always ready to speak to us and perhaps even always speaking the the father's love to us, but we might not always be experiencing that. We might not always even be hearing it. I'm going to hold off and then I'll ask, see if you, yeah. Um, but within this this idea that I was mentioning of the the dark night, Blackaby talks about this experience, and it sounds like what has been called the dark night of the soul. When the Reformation happened, there was this, the the split in the church between the Protestants and the Catholics. The Catholic Church also went through a Catholic Reformation. Um, one of the the leaders in that Reformation movement was a man named John of the Cross or Saint John of the Cross, and he talks about this idea of the dark night of the soul. And we have a song that we do here. It's called "Dance Again." Um, and the line to the song is praise him, uh, in the dark night of your soul. And so this, this language might sound familiar to you. You've even sung it if you've been here on a Sunday morning, most likely. Um, but this idea of the dark night of the soul comes out of John of the cross's, uh, reflections on basically the, the life of the saint, the journey of the saint. Um, and this, there's this idea within the dark night that we, Initially in our relationship with the Lord, especially when we're a new believer, we experience a season of consolation. There's great joy. There's great elation. We're filled with, like, life is good. God is good. Everything is good. And life can be crap. But there still is, like, but God is good. And there's, and that's truth because God is good. Our, our image and our concept during that time are so aligned, Um that everything is, is still blissful. Like like we see the world through rose-colored glasses and being in a place of that, like being, being in a state of consolation is a great blessing. But there comes to be a time typically where that seems to fade. The glory that we were experiencing seems to fade and we're left with a lot of questions. And some of those questions can be, God, do you even exist? Like was that just phantasmal thinking? Was I just experiencing something that was, you know, a phenomenon in my mind. Am I going crazy? Are, are you actually there? Uh, did I do something wrong? Um, have I pushed you away? Have I sinned? Is there sin in my life? What's going on here, God? And that can lead us to do a couple of things. One of those things is that we can end up pushing God away because to try to be near him seems painful um, or we can become so discouraged that we end up finding ourselves in this place of like, why even try? And we reach a point of despair where we say, well, it's it's hopeless. This is just the way the Christian life is now. God, apparently, you get to a certain point and he's just not as close as he used to be. That can be the experience, right? And if you've been through that and you've gone through then a season of desolation and you've experienced that pain and 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 honestly, like, the, yeah, just the hurt that, that can come with that. Um, If you've gone through that, then you also know that there's the, there is a light on the other side. And oftentimes what you find, um, or what I would say, what you always find, is that you are now more intimate with the Lord, that you actually have a deeper love for him. So in this whole idea of the dark night of the soul... St. John, in his work, he talks about this, this idea that God might actually be taking you into a dark night. It's not that you've sinned, necessarily, though maybe you have, and maybe that's why you're experiencing separation, but if you've repented and you're, and you're not doing those things anymore and you're inviting the Spirit to, into that process of sanctification, if, if that's not going on, if it's not that you've sinned, if it's not that you're pushing God away, um, if it's not, maybe, maybe it's that you stop doing the disciplines and not that the disciplines transform you, the Holy Spirit does, but the the disciplines do continually open your heart to the Lord. And so maybe you've forgotten or you've neglected spiritual disciplines. That could be a reason why. But if you've got everything in a a line, if you've not rejected God, if you've not been in sin, if you've not been neglecting spiritual disciplines, if you've been, quote, unquote, doing the right thing, if nothing's changed and you find yourself in this season, we, we sometimes call it desert season, but you find yourself in this place, it's possible that the Lord is actually behind it. And that what he's actually doing in that is he's deepening your love for him. And one of the best things to liken it to is when a parent begins to wean their child off of a bottle and begins to give them more solid food. Because that can be, uh, you parents would would know, that can be a very challenging experience for the baby and a very confusing experience for the baby. Part of that is that there was this attachment uh, to the mom or to the bottle and now there's there seems to be this separation between mom or between the bottle and something that brings consolation being food. And so now there's this change that's going on. And as a parent, you realize that well, I, I can't continue to give you this liquid um and, and not give you any other kind of solid foods. If you don't get these solid foods then you're not gonna get the nutrients that you need to be healthy and to grow. And so I have to begin to give you these these other nutrients. And this is this might be a difficult or challenging process, and it certainly is one for the baby. If we were to get into the mind of a baby and to talk to them about this this separation now that they're experiencing from mom, it would be a very painful experience. That's what we would probably begin to explore, is that the baby for all of its existence has known that that this attachment gives life. And now it seems like you're removing this attachment and why. And so as God takes us into these seasons, of uh, of dar- or these dark nights and he begins to remove the spiritual bottle, so to speak, so he can give us more solid food. Um, he's doing it. It's a loving thing for us to go through. It's a maturing process. And so sometimes God seems like he's silent. Sometimes that can be part of the dark night where it's just like, God, where have you gone? And in Psalm 13, like I quoted earlier, that was David's experience where he cries out to the Lord, how long, O Lord, will you forsake me forever? Now, did God actually forsake him? Had God actually abandoned him or left him? No. But that was, again, conceptually, he knew that to be true. God, you're still here. But his experience of God, his image of God, was that he had been abandoned. And I wonder if what David was going through at that time was a deepening of love, if he was going through a dark night, if he was going through one of these seasons where God maybe was silent for a season, for a time, not to punish, but to deepen love. Jack, do you have a question still? Very important, <laughs> are your life. You are in the church, Yeah, and that's great. And I would even I would even say you know Jesus experiences this as well when he is immediately out of after his baptism he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he's he's fasting. So now he's entering unwillingly willingly into suffering, uh, but he's fasting and and he's led by the Spirit. It says to be tested or, or tempted, um, but he's he's led there by the Spirit. There is this, not that Jesus needed to be purified, but there is this almost purifying process that's going on. In Jesus's life for the ministry he's about to enter into not only that but it also proves him true as messiah And so what we see even in Jesus's experience of being uh, of being led into that type of a season um, for 40 days and 40 nights is um, That there is this proving true of who he is And and that being something that the spirit was doing to prepare him for ministry um, But also then to prove him as the true messiah so the summary statements for this on page 116 says, Oh God, if I ever give you a request and you have more to give me than what I'm asking, cancel my request. Only the Spirit of God knows what God is doing uh, or purposing in my life. God will let me know what he is doing in my life and if I need to know. Sometimes God's silences are caused by sin and sometimes God is silent as he prepares to bring me to a deeper understanding of himself. Um, I think we're like really running out of time here. We are. Um. Hey band, why don't you guys come on up? Yeah, we're going to, we're going to just um. let's see. I think, I think the things that continue to jump out at me in the next several sections was honestly, it was, a, it was, mo- there was more of this idea of, our god image and our god concept the things that we know to be true of the lord and the things that we're experiencing to be true um as you go back through these the the text and you read these things i want to encourage you uh to really read it with that in mind of yeah you know, like one of, one of the things on page 119 says what should you do first go to god and ask him how you uh to show you his perspective on your circumstances Look back at your circumstances from the heart of God. That's great. If we can understand what is the truth, like what is God experiencing, what does God believe or or have as the truth for us, if we can do that, that's great. But then how do we move from, okay, God, I know that that's the truth into, but this is what I'm experiencing. How do we get those to align? And, and so that's what I would encourage you to begin to uh, explore in this process uh, of your sanctification with the Lord is God, as I'm reading through these things, I'm reading wow, there's things in my heart and my life and my perspective that need to shift, that there's things that need to change. And so um change them, Lord. But then I want to be a part of that process as well. So so change change me and lead me in that way. And would you allow God, my concept and my image to align? And one thing I think is a is probably the best tool for that is that when we find ourselves confronted with the fact that our that our uh, image of God is different than our concept of him, when our experience of God is different than what we know to be true. It's in those times where we can, we we can just use those as triggers to allow us to enter back in, to allow us to enter back into prayer. So we become aware of something. God, I really feel like you're not here with me right now, but I know that you are. Would you allow my, my image, my experience of you to allow with what I know to be to align with what I know to be true? Um, another part of it was just, what does it look like to be present with God in pain? Cause that's a, that's part of it as well. Um, the truth of your circumstances, he talks about a little, a little bit about suffering. I wish we could get more into that. Uh, and then he talks about this idea of spiritual markers. It's, it comes out of Joshua chapter four, where the uh, Israelites, they cross over the Jordan and they grab all these stones from the middle of the Jordan and they set up an altar to the Lord as a memorial of remembering what God has done in their life. And what was sweet is that just being on that retreat last week, I think it's still muted up there. You can, you can, yeah, it's still, still muted. Um. Anyway, as as I was on this retreat last week, I was in a place that we had done a retreat for church back in the fall, and part of that retreat is I had had people write on stones uh, what it was that, that God was teaching them. And it was it was cool because I I went and sat down to take communion right before I left the the house, and I looked over the back of the couch that I was sitting on, and I saw the stone that one of the the people had written, and they had left it there because they own the house, um, and they had left it there, and it was just like that sweet reminder of what God had done in their life on that treat on that trip, and so, in placing these these memorial stones in our in our life, um, it allows us this opportunity, it's a trigger again, to be able to look at something to say, oh, that's right. I remember when God did that. And so much of, you know, what, what this book is talking about and the experiences that we go on with God, and hopefully the things that are coming up out of this time, even tonight of like, okay, God is present in that, and I can open to him in this way. uh, It might be, it might be a good time then for you to begin to make these memorial stones. And you can do that in a literal way, taking a stone, writing on it with a Sharpie, but just beginning to establish these memorials of, wow, this is where God was at work. This is how he's been at work all along. This is, you know, and so that when you walk back past them again, like what the Israelites would have done when they walked past that part of the Jordan, the little kids would ask, uh, Dad, what what happened here? Why do we have this memorial here? And they would say, well, this is when the Lord split the Jordan, when it backed up miles away and we walked across on dry land. And so we begin to erect these memorial stones in our life, these spiritual memorials, so we can look back on what is it that God has been doing and how has he been sanctifying me. So that might be something that um, you begin to enter into. This is going to be weird. I'm going to walk back there to turn the band on. But as I do that, I'm going to invite you to begin um, just posturing yourself into uh, kind of a posture of receiving. And I want to talk really briefly about... um, the way that our bodies, cool, the way that our bodies interact actually with music, because I've been mentioning this for the past two weeks, and I think it's really significant. There are certain chemicals that are produced when we uh, listen to music in our body. One of those is dopamine. One of those is oxytocin. Both of these things are typically associated with love hormone or with pleasure, um, and that's not the truest definition of them. Really, the truer definition is that they are part of our social experiences in life. Um, But it's fascinating to me that as we listen to music, that these chemicals, that our body produces these chemicals. The reason why that's fascinating to me is because worship, musical worship, is such a a pivotal part of the religious experience, regardless of what religion we're talking about. But it's rooted in Judaism. It's rooted in Christianity. It's, 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 this core to who we are, where we join together in songs. And I believe that God, knowing what he was doing, wired our bodies to respond to music in this way on purpose so that as we listen to music, that it would stir our hearts for relationship with him. So as we sing, I want to plant that idea in your mind because as we sing or as you sit here and you pray, the music, I believe, is actually by God's design intended to open the heart to a relationship with him. And again, what's going on up here, you can engage with it. You don't have to. This time is is really intended to be a reflection on what you've been hearing tonight. And most specifically, the thing that the spirit is bringing up to your consciousness. And so this is background music or it's something to engage with. But Again, pretend like it's headphones and you're listening and maybe you want to sing the chorus that they're singing and maybe you just want to continue in prayer. And then there's this idea too that, that, that Psalms talk about of singing a new song to the Lord, Psalm 33.3, 3, Psalm 144.9. You're going to hear this a lot. But this idea of, of raising a new song to the Lord, there's this, this concept of whatever this experience is right now that we're talking about, to, to just sing a new song unto God out of that experience. And so you're going to hear that as well. And you're probably going to be encouraged to sing out your own song. And that is to allow your your soul to really begin to connect on a deeper level in a deeper way with what the Spirit's doing. And so let's go to song. Let's go to prayer. Lord, we uh, thank you for the ministry that you're doing right now. Spirit of God, we thank you for how you're transforming us. And would you just um, allow us now to, to really just interact with you in an intimate way as we reflect upon the things that you're teaching us and on who you are.